right now I see patriarchy being blamed as the reason, you know, for everything terrible that's ever happened since the beginning of time. And allegedly the fix is just put women in power, you know, or black people in power, trans people in power. And what I'm pointing out is that patriarchy isn't men in charge. That is a symptom of patriarchy. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, have you ever stopped to think about the transformative power of words, their ability to shape our reality, the way we think, the way we act, even things that seem to happen to us? Well, the guest who's on our program today has not only thought a lot about this, she's actually written a series of very compelling books about it. And her name is Danny Katz. Thanks for being on the program today, Danny. Thanks for having me, Leighton. Honored to be here. Great. So we're going to dive in. I'm going to introduce you properly and uh, talk about uh, at least a couple of your books, the ones that I've read so far. But before we do that, on our show, we have something called Framing Aphorisms. You'll appreciate this. And as I go through these, you'll appreciate that I actually read your books. Uh, The first one is from someone named Buckminster Fuller, uh, who wrote, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Next one is from someone named Ludwig Wittgenstein, who wrote that the aspects of things that are most important for us are hidden because of their simplicity and familiarity. One is unable to notice something because it is always before one's eyes. And finally, a bit of a funny one from a man named James Nichol, who wrote, the problem with defending the purity of the English language is that English is about as pure as a crib house whore. We don't just borrow words on occasion English has pursued other languages down alleyways to beat them unconscious and rifle their pockets for new vocabulary. So who do we have on the show today? Well, Danny Katz. Danny uh, is uh, described as equal parts thought leader, trailblazer, and word wizard. Danny is a catalyst for evolution. Whether writing, teaching, coaching, or podcasting, Danny is a fierce, heart-centered cheerleader for humanity's freedom, empowerment, and win-win solutioning. A visionary thinker with an uber-expanded perspective, Danny has devoted her career to empowering leaders, disruptors, and rebel badasses with the tools, skills, and confidence necessary to thrive as conscious reality creators. Uh, She's uh, described here as the most dangerous woman on the internet, uh, and she is on the internet. She has a podcast too. But in addition to coaching, consulting, teaching, and speaking, Danny is also the best-selling author of The Language of Betterarchy. This is her most recent book, A Blueprint for Uniting Against Tyranny. And also she's written Word Up, Little Languaging Hacks for Big Change and Pop Propaganda, an illustrated guide. Uh, She's also written some other books, including one called Spirit Hacking, which was a number one bestseller, which she wrote for uh, Shaman Durek. She describes herself as a lifelong learner with an unquenchable thirst for capital T truth. So, Danny, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. I love the quotes that you picked. Super (laughs) spot on. (laughs) Well, uh, obviously, this is something that um, is part of your writing. Uh, I noticed that there were a lot of quotations uh, in in your books. And um, I really, I want to start off by saying I really enjoyed uh, certain aspects of your book, especially um, the way that you describe the transformative power of, of words. Uh, I really appreciate that. And this is something that we don't we don't uh, pay enough attention to. The other thing that um, I found uh, really interesting is the way that you described uh, the way that words are being used to tyrannize us and to uh, pit us against each other uh, in, al- in an almost an imperceptible way. And uh, this is a theme not only in WordUp, but also, I guess, more in, uh, in, in betterarchy. Uh, maybe this is wrong, and I'd be interested to get your take on this, but I sort of see word up, uh, uh, sorry, I see betterarchy as sort of taking word up in a lot of ways to another, to another level. Is that a fair way to uh, understand the way you structured these books? Yes, it's, it's spot on. I wrote um, Word Up Little Languaging Hacks for Big Change was intended more for personal transformation. And mm-hmm. the language of betterarchy is taking that body of work and using it for societal transformation. 
Yeah. One of the things that I found really compelling about the book um, also is uh, probably you've you've probably put together one of the best explanations of uh, of feminism, (laughs) the the good, the bad and the ugly. But also you, you speak specifically about how feminism has by inadvertence or by design sort of produced uh, generations of weak, ineffectual, uh, confused and somewhat useless men. Uh, and this is something that uh, I happen to think is not talked about enough. It's a real tragedy because, um, you know, all these useless men, uh, you know, are not making women very happy these days. Uh, so uh, was that was that part of the message too to, to sort of attack some of these paradigms, some of these ways of thinking that, um, you know, are sort of tied up with woke, uh, what we call it woke thinking, progressive thinking, to sort of attack those. Obviously, you talk a lot about in the book about how uh let's say the the left uh, i know that's not a word you like to use uh really weaponizes words against us and and uh sort of turns us against each other uh but was this part of the idea that is 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 to make it an attack on tyranny and to get us turning towards a better way of thinking and living it's definitely intentional to illuminate the tyranny to illuminate the separation Um, because you've read my books, I'm sure you understand my reticence to embrace the term attack, right? Because any sort of oppositional energy is only going to seed violence when my aim is to foster understanding um, and collective win-win solutions. So it was absolutely my intention to illuminate this issue and to be fair, at the same time that the feminist movements have given us weak, ineffectual men, it's given us overly masculinized aggressive women. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a realm of equal and opposite forces. So if the masculine is out of balance, then so too is the feminine. Mm-hmm. And especially the past few years, I see all this emphasis going on attacking the men for where they're out of balance. And I don't really see the feminine taking responsibility for where we can shift and where we're out of alignment. And, um, you know, I really use the masculine feminine as a basis for the rest of the book. That's why it's part one, because right now I see patriarchy being blamed as the reason, you know, for everything terrible that's ever happened since the beginning of time. And allegedly the fix is just put women in power, you know, or black people in power, trans people in power. And what I'm pointing out is that patriarchy isn't men in charge. That is a symptom of patriarchy. But patriarchy is actually a lens of perception. And it's Mm -hmm. a way that we've put guardrails around our mind and our meaning-making mechanisms. It's really limiting our perspective. And Mm -hmm. so from my perspective, the imbalance between the masculine and feminine is expressed through, you know, men in charge, women feeling disempowered. But the true nexus point of the distortion comes in the demonization of emotion intuition of 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 a means of a way of dividing shaming blaming like even attacking a problem right that's going to be a capital m masculine way of doing it and when i talk about masculine and feminine i'm talking about the hermetic principle of gender i'm not talking about embodied men and women because i know people can get their panties in a bunch around that but it's helping us understand where we are using an imbalanced language, where we are using a language that is reliant upon masculine shadows. We're not mm-hmm. going to get balanced solutions from an imbalanced language. So yes, right. it was very deliberate. And I, I appreciate that that translated yeah. and that you picked up on that. One of the things I wanted to ask you about as I was reading, uh, you talk a lot about hierarchies yes. and uh, you know the harm that they cause. And Maybe I had I had this wrong, but you seem to be fairly clear about stating that uh, hierarchies are a social construct, and uh, I, I I found that very interesting because I had read not so long ago uh, sort of a, a different take on that. It was in a book by Dr. Jordan Peterson, you probably know as a, a very well known Canadian public intellectual, and in a book called Twelve Rules for Life. He talks about, and this is somewhat famous now, at least in Canada, about the lobsters. Uh, and he he has a different take on hierarchies. He says that actually these hierarchies are are biological. That we're we're hardwired. They're endemic. Uh, and he uses the examples of lobsters and uh, monkeys and rats and all sorts of different examples in nature. And says that actually these hierarchies are are part of who we are, uh, how we relate to each other. Um, that they're not social constructs. They are they are socially expressed, and that's that's the harm that they cause. 
Mm-hmm. Um, how, how would you respond to, to, to Dr. Peterson's take on hierarchies versus hierarchies being a pure social construct? Uh, so from my perspective, it's both. And this was actually something that I wrestled with in writing the book. And I had conversations with other, you know, thinkers and teachers with whom I respect where my confusion was like, how am I to take down the social construct of hierarchy when there is natural hierarchy that is real, you know, like the tiger is going to eat the bunny every time it's a faster runner. It's a more effective predator. Um, what I see happening in terms of the social imposition of hierarchy is we place value judgments. So I don't mm. think that source or whatever intelligence that is running this realm values the tiger more than the bunny. I don't think that that entity would say that tigers are more valuable than the bunny. We all serve different functions. So mm. what I'm tackling in my book is this imposed socially engineered hierarchy that has us buying into the fiction that we need there to be losers in our culture for there to be winners. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding Jordan Peterson, because I very much respect his work. I'm a fan. I've seen him speak. I mostly love his take on defending the linguistic territory. Right. Yeah. That being said, if you're familiar with Claire Graves' work in Spiral Dynamics, I think that Jordan Peterson is somewhat blinded from a, a kind of blue level authoritative worldview. He's very much aligned with traditional values and structure. And I would venture to say he loves hierarchy. And that's beautiful. (laughs) Um, I'm speaking from a different lens of perception. I see. Interesting. Um, Talking about words, though, like sort of getting back to first principles, if we can, and maybe talking a little bit about word up. Uh, Obviously, you've been a wordsmith. uh, you're, You're a journalist or you have been a journalist, I expect you still are, obviously, with your podcast. But what was your inspiration, your motivation for producing Word Up, for writing that book? Obviously, a very unusual book, for starters. Yes. I mean, this whole realm of of languaging that I'm sharing is is kind of odd, right? It's something new for our culture. Um, So I had clued into the coding and language around 2007, And um, I'd read a book by a man named R. Neville Johnson. He was shot point blank in the chest and he died for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And while he was dead, he downloaded these languaging codes. And after I read the book, I couldn't not see them. And as a journalist who was working with words all day, every day, it just pulled me into this multidimensional conversation while I just started to see how words were programming me and programming people around me. And at the time I was writing for the LA Weekly and I was what they called their nutter butter writer. So my beat was consciousness, spirituality. And I remember going to, um, it was an event that a you know very famous kind of thought leader was doing. And I watched the words come out of her mouth and program and disempower the audience. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy that I'm seeing this and understanding that that wasn't the speaker's intention, but that's what was happening um, through the limitation coding coming through her languaging. So I started to play with the language codes for myself. And, um, you know, as someone who's been walking a transformational path for my adult life, I had tried, you know, so many different modalities and plant medicines and this therapist and this, you know, meditation technique and, you know, sit this 10 day meditation retreat and all of these things, but nothing was as transformative as changing my own languaging patterns Mm. and cluing into you know, what were the thought forms that I was looping on throughout the day? And how was I telling my stories to other people? And basically, how was I painting myself into cages formed of disempowerment and scarcity? And so after seeing how transformative this languaging paradigm was in my own life, as well as in my friends' lives, um, I was invited by a spiritual publisher to write a book about it. And the book I had actually downloaded years before, it came through in like two days. Um, I was living in Santa Fe and this just body of work kind of dropped in. And I I wrote about it and it had been sitting in a hard drive and I kind of forgot about it because I was still in my journalism mindset, you know, and I was Mm -hmm. just writing articles and whatnot. Um, But when this publisher approached me, I said, well, I already have the book. Um, And it was fun, you know, 
I always love tweaking, you know, like the putting down the bones is the heavy lifting, but then the like playing and tweaking and fine tuning is the fun part for me. And um, I was delighted by how well that book has done and the consistently positive feedback I get from people about how supportive and transformative it has been for them. Mm -hmm. Now, part of what you talk about in Word Up and also in Betterarchy is the way that words shape reality. They shape the way we see ourselves, the way we relate to others, the way we relate to the world. Um, and so that's part of the, that's part of the focus. There's a, uh, I, I guess an implied self-improvement, uh, approach here, but my sense of word up is that it's, it's sort of a, a personal word makeover and then betterarchy sort of takes that out into, into the social context in terms of uh, making people people understand, well, how can word power, uh, the way that I use words, improve the way that I relate to others to live peacefully and harmoniously with other people? Um, was that sort of, sort of do I have that, that the relationship between the two books accurate or am I off the mark? No, you're on the mark. The, the only thing I would add to the language of betterarchy is helping people understand our responsibility in creating our world. We are, mm. all of us are responsible for sustaining this outdated structure, whether we're in, you know, government or elected positions or not, because this reality construct is forged of our thoughts, words, and actions. Right. And we are responsible for every, all the input that we're putting into the morphogenetic field into our world. So the mm -hmm. point for this book was A, to help people understand how we are responsible for our world, but also to empower people with tools to change our world. I think a lot of us can see that the world is messed up, you know, that we're teetering off of a very dangerous edge. And I also think a lot of us can be overwhelmed by how messed up things are, how many mm -hmm. systems are inviting an overhaul. And so many of us through generations of indoctrination can feel powerless, right? And that's mm -hmm. very deliberate. The social engineers want us to feel powerless. And so mm -hmm. this book is to rewrite that fiction and to let people know and really grok and understand how we are all reality creators and every word we are speaking is contributing to how this reality is forged and for giving people a set of tools to change this reality so that we're not sitting around waiting for some knight on a white horse to like be installed in the Oval Office and fix things for us. But instead for us to take responsibility now and do what we can to start changing our world now. Mm -hmm. So this is the, I guess, the second part of the title, which is a blueprint for uniting against tyranny. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this tyranny. You, you elucidate this in the book. What, what, what exactly is the tyranny that we're, that you're talking about in your book? Well, I think the tyranny has a number of different faces and tendrils, right? So, you know, I think one of the more obvious tyrannies is divide and conquer, right? And the extent right. to which the social engineers are going to try to convince us that we're separate, that we're not all human, that we're not all deserving of love, respect, empathy, a seat at the table, a voice, et cetera, et cetera. That's one of the more obvious ones. Right. We can also see the tyranny in the civil liberties grab in mm -hmm. the attempt to police and control speech, right? But I think if we're going to go down to root causes, which is generally how I'm wired, like let's get to root causes and solutions, you know, as right. quickly as possible. I think the primary cause is um, this misunderstanding of what authority is right. and how we have been indoctrinated to believe that authority is something that lies outside of us, mm -hmm. that it is an entity or an organization that has the right to tell us what to do. Right. And when we look to the etymology of authority, we can see that authority is, in fact, an inside job. Authority comes from the Latin word octor, which means right. founder, builder, or one who causes to grow. But we don't have to overthink it. We look to the word authority. It has the word author in it. To right. me, it's the divine right to write our stories however we choose. Yeah. Um, and so this is, again, a tool to help us write better, more empowering, unifying, you know, beautiful life affirming stories for ourselves. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, we can put as many patches over the issue as possible. But until we understand our own sovereign authority and until we stand in our own agency and empowerment, 
that we have every right to determine the direction this earth goes goes to. No one has more right than any one of us. And I think most of us, you know, the majority of us want win-win solutions that serve the greatest good of all. Um, mm -hmm. So this is helping us, you know, rewrite that fiction and understand that we have the authority to steer our earthship onto safer, saner territory. Mm -hmm. And this is a tool for us to do just that. That uh, concept of authority, I recall that distinctly from your book. And that, that really struck me because as a Christian, it got me thinking about, you know, how the universe was created, you know, in the book of Genesis. It's interesting, you know, God spoke the universe into existence. He used words. That, and, and so uh, for those of us who are, you know, of the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, let's say, or, or worldview, um, this makes a lot of sense. It, it fits right in line with the idea of us being creators, being authors of our own lives. Uh, and so that part of it uh, really, really struck me. And you're quite right. Uh, and I believe you talk about this a little bit in the book, that the more we, we start to author our own lives, the better we become at making effective decisions. And the better decision makers we become, we tend to have uh, more fulfilling, happier, more harmonious lives. And, and we have less conflict with others. So that part of it, that part of your book actually really, uh, you know, really, really spoke to me. Um, I want to uh, sort of hit you with a real life example. I want to get your your take on this. Uh, as you know, the the you know the Claudine Gay situation has been very much in the news recently. Mm -hmm. And and I when this when this came up, I thought about it in the context of your books, uh, because you know a lot of this in terms of plagiarism, um, racism, things like that. This that you talk about in the book are were really sort of played out in real time in that situation. Uh, so uh, what, what's your take on the, on that Claudine Gay situation, you know, in the context of, let's say, you know, the betterarchy? Uh, can you provide sort of, an, sort of a, real, a real world interpretation or application of the principles in the book to, the, to, that, to that situation for our viewers and listeners? I can. And um, I'm going to offer a caveat um, as well as I, I just want to say, like, it's so validating to hear from someone who does identify as a Christian that that resonated, because as someone who's not religious, that passage of the Bible has su had such a profound effect on me. So I, I'm very happy to know that that um, that translated in terms of understanding language as reality creation technology. Yeah. Yeah. So my caveat for the Claude, is it Claudine Gay? Is that her name? Yes. This lady who is the, the president of Harvard and yeah. got into some trouble. Yeah. So um, the caveat I want to offer, because I not only write and teach about language, but I also write and teach about propaganda, is oh. it's a giant distraction. You know, and the fact that there's even any controversy over this, it, to me, is indicative of how successful the propaganda machine is. Um, Interesting in terms of getting us talking about something that is so obvious. So right. I think it's twofold. The fact that we're even discussing whether it's okay to plagiarize is insane to me, right? To not give people <laughs> credit. You know, and especially yeah. in an academic institution like Harvard, we're not talking some like podunk yeah. community college. Like we know that the backbone of academia is to cite our sources. We all know right. this. Um, yes. And then to make the claim that to be called out for this lack of integrity is racism speaks to what you were saying about my work in terms of how language programs our minds and it programs how we perceive yeah. reality, right? Yeah. So if I'm operating with a victim mindset that says, I'm not going to get a fair shake in the world because I'm black or because I'm a woman or because I'm Jewish or, you know, whatever it is, then that is going to shape my lens of perception, right? Mm -hmm. So let's, let's pick something totally neutral. Let's say it's because I'm a woman, right? right. Um, now I'm going to take anything that I deem as an affront and I'm going to try to plug that into this sexism mindset because I'm operating with a belief system that is programming me to think that I'm never going to get a fair shake because the world hates women, right? So right. it's just like backing it into this corner that is this limiting belief or this victim story that I've written for myself. And I see this happening more and more on the woman front. Like there were various, you know, congressional hearings I've seen in the past couple weeks. And it's like, oh, can a woman not speak on this floor? Can a woman not be heard on this floor? And it's, 
it's very frustrating because it's so disempowering and it detracts and distracts from the actual issues at hand, which mm-hmm. is really the point of all these victim narratives. It's like, well, let's not talk about what we really need to be talking about as a culture and instead just avoid the conversation so we don't hurt someone's feelings who's playing the victim card. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, getting back to this concept of the betterarchy, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate with you here, just okay. just for the purposes of I love it. having a stimulating conversation, which is something that you actually say in your book, that if you're actually living out the betterarchy, you can talk about anything and not have conflict. Yes. Uh, so on one view of the matter, the betterarchy presents as, as, a, as a sort of way of getting people to understand uh, perhaps a new sort of moral code, a secular one, certainly humanist. You call yourself a humanist you, in, in your book. How are you and defining humanist? I'm, I'm just curious because that's one of my that's that, that's that's that, that, that's actually actually where I want to go with you um, because I'm, I'm more interested in how you define it because great. Humanistic attempts, and and you know what these are, to sort of uh, prescribe a new moral code for for mankind, humankind, have not been very effective. Uh, think of Rousseau's social contract. Uh, you think of, uh, for example, Hume's, uh, you know, the pleasing sentiment of approbation or Kant's categorical imperative. To my mind, all of these have have failed, and they failed miserably. In fact, I think they've in some ways, the secular humanism, classical secular humanism, has really compounded the problem and was a precursor of the wokeism that we're living through today. And so uh, uh, my question for you is, when you use that word humanist, uh, in, in how, are you, how are you defining that? What do you mean when you say that you're a humanist? I'm so glad that you're asking me this, and I'm so glad that the conversation <laughs> is taking this direction, because we're clearly using two different definitions of humanism, right? right and, this yes. is, and this is also like one of the keys in betterarchy as well as in Word Up is let's define our terms because so mm-hmm. often we're arguing over things and we're not talking about the same thing. So right. I'm a deeply spiritual person. I absolutely believe in a higher power. I'm using humanism as a means of rewriting the these concepts of sexism or racism and using it as a means of getting away from the anti you know right. and moving us into pro right yeah. so for yeah. me i'm using it in a very simple way of i'm for the good of humanity and not all these like weird divisions um mm-hmm. but no part of my own personal definition of humanism is aligning itself with atheism. And I agree uh-huh. with you. I, I don't think we would have gotten here if the social engineers hadn't pulled God or the notion of a higher power away from the populace. Yes. One one of the problems I think that those theories, the ones that I mentioned, uh, suffer from, Rousseau is, uh, I think the classical example is this, uh, what, what I think is a mistaken presumption that human beings are essentially good. N- not only is there really a paucity of evidence that that's true. In fact, all the evidence is in the other direction. I'm speaking as somebody who spent a lot of time in courts and criminal courts. Uh, people are not, are, people are not essentially good. And uh, I don't, I don't think, and I'm interested to get your, your take on this. I don't think that we can change our behavior or change our environmental conditions in order to make us good. I think that has to come from another source. I'm interested to get your take on that. It's interesting because I've been wrestling with this the past year myself. I, I, at my core, am animated by idealistic tendencies. And I'm, I just know myself well enough that I'm not going to get away from that. I do believe that humans are fundamentally good. Now, there are some bad apples, of course. Yeah. Um, but my perspective and whether it's going to work in my lifetime or not um, is to speak to people's highest selves and to right. give them the benefit of the doubt and to hold them in their highest potential and my belief in their highest potential and to trust that that's going to encourage them to meet that vibration. Mm-hmm. Am I mm-hmm. disappointed by people in that? All the time. Right. Um, but I also know that 
we've been co-opted as a humanity and we've been co-opted by dark forces that have done us a disservice. So I'm kind of on the fence as to whether we're truly not all good or because of the co-opting and the indoctrination, people have been steered away from their inherent goodness. And I'm working this out for myself right now as I learn more and more discernment and at the same time hold people to their highest because I also have been pleasantly surprised in doing that. Right. It's it's tricky. It's very tricky. Yeah. Well, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just interested, having read your books, what your thoughts are are about this. Um, You know, speaking from, again, from the Judeo-Christian perspective, those of us who are Christians... Um, speaking of words, in, in the Gospel of John, it says that the word was made flesh and, and walked among us. Um, and, uh, and so that, that's really taking this, this idea of, of creation and, and the word uh, to its ultimate level. And what I mean by ultimate level is I mean the transcendent. And uh, this is something that you seem to talk around in your book, in your books, but um, I'm interested to know, because you talk a lot about in, in your books about how um, the use of language and changing the way that we use it can improve our lives, uh, our daily lives, for example, in terms of getting some of the things that we want, making us feel better about who we are, getting along with other people. But there isn't a lot of discussion in your books about the transcendent. Um, and I'm interested to know why, why that is. Can you, would you mind unpacking a little bit what, by, uh, um, well, what you mean by that? What I mean by, by transcendent is, is what, what transcends this life, uh, a human existence. You know, we're born, we live for a while, we have conversations on a podcast, and then at some point, you know, we all, we all die, you know, ash, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Uh, but there's something that, uh, that, and you talked about spirituality, you know, in the in the Christian faith, um, we believe that that actually this life is a preparation for the next, and so and so actually that and that is you know for example taking the Bible, uh, for example, or or the gospel, which I guess for Christians would be an example of betterarchy. Um, we we live by that because we see those words as the living word of God that transforms us and actually transcends human existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the highest form of this is John 3.16. Uh, you know, for God, you know, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son so that uh, whoever believeth in him shall have eternal life. So I, I don't want to get too far down the road with the religious discussion, but I'm interested to know about how betterarchy sort of fits in with, for example, people like me uh, who have a Christian uh, worldview. Or, or, or do you have some thoughts about that? I do. And I, I love these questions. Um, I, I really appreciate how thoughtful these questions are. So with betterarchy specifically, I'm aiming for as wide an audience as possible, right? right? So I'm doing my best in my, you know, with my cheeky way of being as inclusive as possible of all yes, worldviews and I cosmologies see. in the conversation. That being said, I think the fixity section actually really speaks to what you're talking about because the okay. language of betterarchy is speaking to an ever unfolding journey, right? It's why I don't mm-hmm. acknowledge the concept of failure. Maybe what appears to be failure in this lifetime is still prepping me and teaching me for the next or the next or the next or the next. It's right. why so much of, you know, that section specifically is a, is um, aiming to eradicate these notions of fixity and move us into a more eternal unfolding beyond just this realm. So it's Mm -hmm. why a lot of the languaging hacks or upgrades are aspirational, right? It's like, okay, so I'm may not have, you know, mastered hop keto. Now I'm still learning. I'm still mastering. So it's inviting us to not put boundaries or guardrails on things that we haven't yet achieved or don't think we can do and to open that up. It -hmm. also speaks to um, the languaging upgrades around never and always. right? Right. And trusting that like, if I say, oh, you know, my relationships never work out, in my languaging paradigm, I'm seeding multiple lifetimes with that thought form. 
and teaching people, hey, just because something has happened multiple times in the past, let's open ourselves up to the potentiality that exists in our eternal lifetimes and earthwalks. So right. I believe that the transcendent is there. I'm just not naming it specifically. It's more right. subtle. You don't want to get sorry. You don't want to, uh, let, let's say, alienate some people who don't have a particular uh, religious viewpoint. I understand that. Um, as a Christian, you know, this, this, this better archie, though, makes a lot of sense to me because uh, those of us who are Christians, you know, we, we essentially live by the Lord's second commandment, which is, you know, love thy neighbor. And, uh, you know, that's not very far off from what you're trying to get at in better archie, is it? No, it's, it's spot on because it's also, it's acknowledging our humanity, our shared humanity and maintaining the respect and compassion for that. Even if we vote differently, think differently, you know, relate differently. I'm inviting right. us to always, always honor our shared humanity and not let differences in belief, in behavior, um, inspire us to remove that or to disrespect that or to cut people out of our community because of those things. Right. Uh, so, you know, uh, turning away from your books just for a moment, uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of your other activities. I noticed from visiting your website that uh, you're also involved in something called quantum languaging and consulting. Would you mind explaining a little bit about, about that work and, and what, you, what you actually do for, do for people? Yes. So um, the language of betterarchy is kind of a subset of quantum languaging. Quantum languaging is the umbrella term I use for this languaging paradigm that I'm sharing, wherein we're learning how language functions as reality creation technology and right. consciously and deliberately implementing it into our individual lexicons. So mm -hmm. as a quantum languaging coach and consultant, I'm looking at um, people's individual languaging habits, right? Like it's one thing to read my books, to take my courses. It's different to have my ears on your individual languaging patterns. Or when I'm consulting with organizations, to have me in the organization and observing the meetings, observing the culture and seeing what are the languaging patterns that are sabotaging the mission, that are slowing down uh, productivity mm -hmm. that are um, contributing to inefficiency or to infighting amongst team members. So I'm looking at the very specific languaging habits. And then with my, you know, my, the clients that I'm coaching and those who I'm consulting who are willing to go deeper, going deep into the belief systems that are informing the languaging habits and seeing like, where was the trauma you know, or the confusion that inspired this erroneous belief system that is therefore informing these languaging habits, right? So mm -hmm. very simply, like, if, you know, if there's a scarcity, you know, mentality, if somewhere along the way, I decided that money was evil, and that, you know, only evil people are wealthy, that thought form, that belief structure is going to inform the scarcity languaging patterns. So part mm -hmm. of my work is using the languaging patterns to hone in on the deeper issues, mm -hmm. healing and integrating the deeper issues, then rewriting the stories. And then from there, the languaging upgrades are really easy to implement. And then we, that's when we see everything change. Mm -hmm. If I were to use like if at a fundamental level, I thought that only evil people had a lot of money, it wouldn't matter how often I said money comes to me easily and often if that is in direct conflict with an underlying belief system. Interesting. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, it does. And actually, uh, again, this is another, um, another area where uh, what you wrote really spoke to me, this idea of that we live in a universe of abundancy because that happens to be a very biblical idea. Uh, that's very much part of part of Western culture, uh, and of course, uh, the idea of of scarcity. And you quite rightly point out, uh, leads us down so many very very dangerous paths. Um, and you know what what you're describing uh, is almost the antithesis of uh, diversity, inclusion, equity training that's going on all over the place. I would think that. Uh, if you were running your your webinars and your seminars at Fortune 500 companies, 
uh, you know, we wouldn't have as many Claudian Gay situations. Uh, but uh, you you do offer this language of sovereign authority webinar as well, right? Yes, that's one of my favorites, and that was actually a precursor. Like it, it covers pretty much all. All of the material in the language of sovereign authority is covered in the language of betterarchy. And I mm -hmm. created that program um, when they were doing the pandemic and, and we were under really hard lockdown here in New Mexico. Right. And I was watching the people around me disempower themselves in the face of what was going on. And so mm -hmm. I created this program as a, a way for people to maintain their empowerment and to maintain their sovereign agency, even if they were choosing to go along with certain mandates and dictates and explaining mm -hmm. to people that like you could choose to cover your face if you decide to and still maintain your sovereign authority and your agency if you're framing it in the right way and helping people get through this while staying connected to their empow empowerment and their agency. Mm -hmm. that, it's, it's such a great one. I, I highly recommend that program. Yeah. What about uh, another one that you that you offer is called the language of healing. How is that one different than than the other webinar that you offer? Yeah. So the language of healing also came out. Um, I had been playing with it myself um, pre pandemic, but when people started um, getting the injections, some young women in our community here were being diagnosed with cancer very, very young. And so as my means of giving back, I was offering these sessions to people who are getting these diagnoses to help them um, start programming their bodies for accelerated healing. So mm. um, the quantum languaging paradigm acknowledges that every word we speak is programming our bodies at all times. So if we're dealing with a health challenge, um, it's very helpful to be mindful. Am I programming my body for more sickness? Am I programming okay. my body to drag this out? Or am I programming my body by the way that I'm telling other people and myself around this challenge? Am I programming my body for accelerated healing? So it's helping people um, frame these healing initiations in such a way that they can accelerate their healing as quickly as possible. Um, and have full and complete recovery. So for anyone who's dealing with any sort of he health challenge, it's really helpful because yes, we can be telling ourselves the most positive stories about how quickly we're overcoming, but we could be using certain words and telling people in our lives about what we're dealing with that will reflect back to us more sickness, a more drawn out healing process. So it's also cluing into how do we wanna to talk to people about it? And also understanding that the Western medical paradigm is based on giving us worst case scenarios, right? Because right. their, their yeah. primary aim is not for us to get well, it's for them to not get sued. And us getting right. well is second. So they're <laughs> always going to be covering their own butts by giving us worst case scenarios so we don't sue them. And it's very important for us to not um, not swallow and embrace those narratives. It's not to create conflict with the doctors, but it's to learn how to rewrite what they're telling us so that we can heal and we can be the exceptions rather than their rules. Mm -hmm. I suppose uh, Shakespeare was right when he wrote, kill all the lawyers first. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's... Uh, <laughs> So uh, let's talk uh, about your Word Up podcast. This is something you've been doing for a while now. You were pretty early to the podcast game, weren't you? Uh, so well, how did the podcast get started? So the podcast got started. Um, increasing censorship in the journalism landscape was making it harder and harder for me to do what I'm trained to do and what I love to do. And so in my research, podcasts are, uh, as a you know, podcasts are the least censored and hopefully, you know, that will continue. Um, so I started, it was actually a completely different concept for a podcast that I was going to be doing with a friend of mine and um, circumstances had him dropping out at the very last minute. So I just thought, okay, well, I love talking to people. I'll do an interview format um, and put these podcasts out. For me, I'm a pretty extreme introvert. Um, I like a lot of alone time, like a crazy amount of alone time. So it's very healthy and nourishing for me to have deep, 
um, you know, exploratory conversations at least once a week. Um, and as a journalist, I'm always looking for the novelty. I'm looking for the new thing. Like, where has the person I'm talking with not gone yet? I sense something similar with you, you know, like oh, I want to take great. them someplace where they haven't been so that, you know, the idea of discovery and novelty really drives the conversations that I share. Um, I was just, my show was just picked up by Progressive Radio Network. Which oh, is, wonderful. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. thank you so much. That just happened. And so I'm, I'm now in the process of folding in more quantum languaging shows um, with the interviews so that I could also be using the opportunity to help people get a deeper understanding of my work mm. in addition to showcasing other people's works and having really cool conversations. Uh, so you're going to spend a lot more time uh, working on your podcast and maybe less time writing interesting books. Uh, that, that's a shame, but I'm sure that your your podcast will enjoy uh, continued success. Thank um, you. I appreciate that. You know, uh, one one book that we haven't talked about, um, actually a couple of them that I, I'm going to ask you to maybe comment on. Uh, one is, and I haven't read these two. Um, I, I really enjoyed Word Up and Betterarchy. But one is called Pop Propaganda, an Illustrated Guide. Is this the one that you talked about where you said that you basically wrote it over a two-day period? No. Um, so the bulk of Word Up dropped in over a two-day period. Uh, but I did, oh, write, okay. I did write Pop Propaganda really quickly. I wrote it in um, three weeks. I have it right yeah. here. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is it. And yeah. um, so... Uh, during hard lockdown, I was invited by a homeschool collective in New York to teach mm. their teens. And this was right at the time when Biden was installed in the Oval Office. And I had installed. Spent, <laughs> I had spent <laughs> the bulk of my career since 2001 trying to mm. stop what's happening now. Um, at the time, I was producing the news for Pacifica Radio. That's when I clued oh. into Project for a New American Century, started to educate myself, Club of Rome, the globalist agenda. And mm -hmm. so my whole aim was to stop what's happening now. When they installed Biden, I realized, okay, it's happening. Like <laughs> the people yeah. have made their choice. I was not successful in staving that off. So let me turn my attention to the youth so that this never happens again. Right. So. Right. My first class that I taught the homeschoolers was about propaganda and mm. media literacy and learning to safeguard their critical thinking. And I was using the Bernays book as our textbook, which is a great book, but not fun for teenagers. So I got hit with the bioweapon that they call Fovid right when I finished teaching that class. And as I was down, I was like, well, let me use this opportunity to create a textbook for propaganda that's more fun for mm. teens to read. So I busted out the pop propaganda book, which features 37 tools, tricks, and techniques the social engineers use to try to propagandize us. And it's very much like a magic trick. Like once we know the tricks they're using, they don't work on us anymore. Interesting. Um, so I feel like it's really important for teens and grownups to educate ourselves as to how propaganda works because we're all susceptible. I'm still susceptible. Mm -hmm. they're, they're capitalizing upon our weaknesses. And what's happening right now is absolutely a war of words and a war of thought. Like right now, we don't have a ground war. We're not being attacked with bullets and missiles and tanks. We're being attacked with propaganda um, and words. And so this is a way right. for people to understand how and why that's happening. Um, and I just am in the process, it'll be done in a week of digitizing my pop propaganda course so that people can take it without needing me to teach it in real time. Really? Um, so I'm oh, very great. excited for that to get out because I think it'll really do a lot in helping us, again, take our power back, come together and course correct and create a different mm -hmm. game. So this propaganda, in a real sense, is is the antithesis of the type of authorship that you write about and that you that you try and teach people to do. Uh, and and so uh, I, I could see where uh, you would have sort of a, a, an innate understanding of propaganda and how it works. Um, and we've talked a lot about that on this pro program, actually. Um, another book that you've written is called Yes, I Am. Um, you want to talk about that one a little bit? I, I haven't had the chance to read this one. 
it looks like it might be aimed at younger children. Is that correct? Um, so Yes, I Am is a transformational coloring book for kiddos, okay. grownups, and, and everyone in between. And it started as a calendar. So I, you know, years ago, I realized that our, our holidays in this country are really just days to not go to the bank, not go to the post <laughs> office and not go to work. But we're not actively invoking the energies of whatever we're celebrating. You know, our right. culture is missing that. And I think it's doing us a disservice. So I created my own calendar called the Yes, I Am calendar. And I created new holidays for people who I saw as beautiful thought leaders, um, people who changed our culture for the better. So Krishnamurti, um, Hypatia, Ayn Rand, Tom Robbins, David Bowie, you know, like I was just having fun. And then mm -hmm. each kind of of the 12 calendar pages would be a, a positive affirmation, like I am confidence. And mm -hmm. when I draw, people don't know this because, you know, I'm an illustrator as well. My drawings are teeny tiny. They're very, very small because I, I think I've always been obsessed with like saving paper and not wanting to <laughs> clear cut forests. So, mm -hmm. you know, ever since I was little, I was trying to fit as much as I could on one page. So for the calendar, like say it was the I Am Confidence page, it would have like 30 tiny little drawings to help us cultivate and inspire confidence. And after a few years of putting out this calendar, it occurred to me that um, analog wall calendars weren't really a moneymaker. <laughs> and there was like a cult, you know, fervor for the people who loved this calendar. They asked for it every year, but it, it, it took so much time to change all the days and it really didn't make a lot of money. So I decided to turn it into a coloring book so that it could exist, you know, in a timeless way. And also so that people could engage the little drawings and the little prompts um, and have it be a little bit more interactive. So that's what mm -hmm. Yes, I Am is. It's the conversion of the calendar into this kind of massive coloring book. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. A, a lot of the books, as you talk about them, um, seem to be aimed at, obviously, personal individual empowerment. Yes. And, uh, you know, sort of offering up some type of defense for lack of a better word uh to to the type of propaganda that you that you write about um but i'm interested to know your thoughts on this um but let's take the concept of betterarchy and framing it as let's say a grand narrative like life liberty and the pursuit of happiness um these grand narratives seem to be what uh the people like Biden, the Biden administration and others, the, you know, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and you name it, they seem to be very, very intent upon toppling over statues, uh, you know, canceling great authors, destroying works, cherished works of art, really tearing down these grand narratives that have been the, let's say, the pillars of Western civilization for a very long time. Western civilization being, let's say, the repository of all the best things about about Western civilization over many centuries. Um, how do we restore these grand narratives? Do you think, first of all, do you think it's important to restore those grand narratives? I think I know what you'll say about that. But, and, and if that, if so, how do we do that? Such a good question. Um, I mean, it's hard given how much of our history they've tried to erase so far. Right, yeah. I look back, like the reason I became a writer was because I read the book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. I grew up in Los Angeles. So Los Angeles, very diverse, very progressive. But hearing the language used in that book was so heartbreaking to me. And it showed me the power of the written word and how much mm -hmm. emotion the written word could cultivate. And mm -hmm. the fact that they're trying to censor that book and just take it out of circulation is insane to me. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, one of the things is we have to restore complete, unfettered free speech. Right. It, it, it's so important. And we have to know mm -hmm. where we came from so that we can honor um, how far we've come. And we can right. honor the spirit of humanity and how we actually are good. 
you know, mm -hmm. and like how much we've transcended as a child of the 70s, like all of these narratives around racism and sexism, they don't land for me, you know, because I grew up reading me neither. free to be yeah. you and me and like loving Fred yeah. Sanford and, you know, the Cosby show and all of those things. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, one of the things that I'm inviting solutions for are what do we do about these generations that have been programmed with this, these ideas of separation and identity. And I'm still waiting, you know, for, you know, capital L life to show me how we're going to fix that. Well, you could write a series of great books that, that might help. Well, one of the <laughs> things that I would love to do, did you grow up with Schoolhouse Rock? Do you remember that series? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I feel yeah. like we need a new version of those um, mm -hmm. with our real history, you know, yeah. with, yeah. Um, you know, tying math into sacred geometry and, you know, the power of language to program our reality and empowerment mm -hmm. and confidence. I think one of the things that we're up against is the entertainment machine and how yes. many of us are addicted to that. And then people like you and me who are trying so hard to wake up the world, like, it's kind of boring and didactic. Like we're two grownups talking into a screen and, you know, it's great for us, but is it going to capture the minds of kids who want cartoons and colors yes. and entertainment? So I yeah. think one place that I'm excited for us to go is to start creating um, more entertainment media that's fun and has catchy jingles mm -hmm. and catchy slogans that can get the same traction that, you know, the propagandists get with their nonsense. I right. think that would yes. go a long way in helping us. Yeah, I agree. You know, uh, what you say about freedom of speech really resonates with, with me. And one of the things that has been lost in our public discourse is, um, you know, the idea that we can have conversations and we can risk giving offense to someone else. Um, it just during the course of this hour, uh, I've asked you questions and, and uh, that maybe that you could have taken offense to, but you didn't. Uh, but we had a meaningful conversation because I risked offending you because I really wanted to know what you thought. And of course, this is something that's really being shut down in our public discourse. And we don't seem to have shows, you know, like William F. Buckley used to have. Uh, you know, we need to have more. I think we we need to demonstrate to to younger people and really to everyone, but especially younger people that uh, you know we don't need safe spaces we don't have to worry about being triggered we can actually risk a giving offense in order to have a meaningful conversation uh we can we can talk about things that we, that we disagree upon but we can do it in a civil way uh in a way that is harmonious uh, and but but we can learn from each other if we really respect each other and listen uh so I, it seems to me that's part of what you're talking about uh in 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 betterarchy um but, you know, we've come to the part of the show where we wrap up. Uh, Danny, I want to thank you so much for the time. This has been a really illuminating conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, on this show, we we close with something called the reading list. Now, obviously, uh, the cat's out of the bag. My selections are the four books that we've talked about that you have authored. Uh, but you get the last word here. And obviously, you're somebody who is very well read. Um, are there a book or two or, or some other resource, whether it's a website or something like that, that you would recommend to people, uh, who are listening to this or, or watching this, uh, that would maybe expand their understanding of some of the things we've been talking about today? Uh, absolutely. And what a great question. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of Dr. David Hawkins. And so, uh, as much as I would love my books to be required reading for every human on the planet, um, mm -hmm. I think power versus force especially for where we're at right now as a culture is a, is a must read. Mm -hmm. um, again, honoring everyone's free will. So I would never insist. Um, but I think Dr. David Hawking's entire body of work is so helpful in just helping us understand um, subtleties of violence and force. Um, and a lot of it informs my work, especially my work on conflict languaging and just understanding how our language can shut people down and if we're shut down, we're not going to be able to collaborate on solutions. Um, mm -hmm. And the last thing that I would like to say, if I, if I can, when you ask me if I believe people are fundamentally good, the reason why you can risk offending me, I think, is because there's a part of you that knows I'm good. Right. And if we give mm -hmm. people the generosity of trusting that they know 
that we're coming from the right place and also the generosity of trusting that they have tools to manage their emotions and their triggers. And we give each other that, I think it's going to be easier to have these tougher conversations. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, thank you again, Danny, for being with us and thank you for your books. I enjoyed them very much. They're part of our real, our, of our reading list and I strongly recommend them to, to our audience. Um, as a last word, I, I noted that, uh, in one of your books, I believe it was uh, uh, Betterarchy. There was a foreword by Dr. David Martin, <laughs> and uh, I, if you could put in a word for me, I'd love to have him on this program because he's uh, he's he's said some things publicly about the connection between uh, you know the COVID nineteen vaccine conspiracy and our Prime Minister in Canada, and I'd I'd love to have to have him come on the show to to go more in depth with him on that on that uh, on that topic. So let's consider that a. A last, a last request, if you will. Absolutely. I'm happy to shoot my friend David an email on your behalf. All right. Thanks. And thank you so much for being our special guest today on Gray Matter. Best of luck with all that you do. I hope you sell lots of books and that uh, your, your podcast just explodes across the internet. Thank you so much, Leighton. Thank you for having me. I love this conversation. Super grateful. Thank you.